as we continue our series in the Jesus generation and needing every generation to have within it a Jesus generation. Uh, we want to talk today about the power that is available to us, the power that is available to us. Uh, this past week, our praise team uh, led the worship for a fusion conference, which was uh, five revival ministries plus a lot of other prayer and revival ministries gathering at the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove for three days to talk and to pray about revival. We had uh, pastors there from Brazil and from Pakistan, from South Africa, from uh, all around the, the uh, world, as well as mostly the United States. And I will say to you that all around the world, God is moving and God is working and lives are being changed. But what we need to see in the American church is another Jesus movement. We need to be revived. We need to be ignited with the possibilities of what God can do. Uh, within the ages of 13 to 29, there are 50 million, 50 million people in America between 13 and 29. Over 90% of them are not involved or connected with in any way to any church group or satanic group or false religion. They have no religion. And we are called to reach them. Carmen uh, LaBerge Fowler asked a question in a revival panel. She said, are you willing to hate some of the things your church does to reach that generation? In other words, the question she's asking is, are you more concerned about it being about you or are you concerned about it being about 50 million lost teenagers and young adults? That was the real question. The question was, does it have to be your music, your style, your time, your seat, your parking space, or is it really that we care about the next generation? Because if we don't, we will one day die. And if we try to do ministry to that generation by trying to be cute or sexy and not realizing that it is the Word of God and relationships with people that matter, then we'll miss it anyway. We need a power to operate in a power. I, I said to Carmen while we were on the revival forum, I said, you know, I said the problem with people in my generation, they look at piercings and tattoos and they never look in their eyes and see eyes that are hurting for relationship and eyes that are hurting for meaning in life and eyes that lack purpose. They just see the outside and it turns them off. And I'm talking about my generation and shame on us for being that way. Shame on us for being that way. Because I had people look at me like that just because I had long hair when I was a teenager. That I didn't belong and I didn't fit. And if I cleaned up, I could get around them. That's not the church, folks. That's religion. That's not church. That's religion. And that's dead religion. And Jesus confronts dead religion. That's why we need a Jesus generation. Alvin Reed and I were preaching in uh, Missouri a couple of years ago at the Missouri Evangelism Conference, and, and I got there and he got there. We never, you, you never know in those things what somebody's going to preach on. And I said, well, Alvin, what are you preaching on? He said, well, I'm preaching on the Jesus movement. I said, hmm, that's funny. I'm preaching on the Jesus movement too. I hope you didn't steal mine, and I hope you didn't, I didn't steal yours. 
uh, but we had a great time talking. But Alvin had three statements about the sign of a Jesus revolution. The first one was a Jesus movement is a Holy Spirit movement. The Bible says you will receive power. There is no great move of God without a move of the Holy Spirit among his people. Because when God's Spirit moves among his people, then he also moves his people to do something about that which they have seen and heard. There's no power in a movement without the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't say when you get the right material. He didn't say when you get the right program. He didn't say when you get to a certain number. He said, you will receive power. It's a Holy Spirit movement. Peter was filled with the Spirit. Paul was filled with the Spirit. The disciples were filled with the Spirit. The early church saw 3,000 people come to Christ in a matter of 10 minutes for one reason. The church was Spirit-filled. There is no awakening without the power of the Holy Spirit. John Bassanio said of the Jesus movement, it was simply and foremost a move of the Holy Spirit. If we're going to have a Jesus generation that impacts our culture, then we've got to have that kind of move. Alvin Reed said, only the Holy Spirit could influence Life magazine, the biggest magazine in America at that time, to make one of their 1972 covers a portrait of a guy wearing a T-shirt that said one way as he points to heaven. Del Faisenfeld, who founded Life Action, said, as long as God is on his throne, revival is as possible as the sun rising tomorrow morning. Not only is the Jesus movement a move of the Holy Spirit, it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. Now, that seems obvious, but you wouldn't know it by being around most religious media today podcast, television, anything else, you wouldn't know that it's about Jesus. You'd think it's about the guy that was speaking, you know, that names everything after themselves. You would think it was, it was about an organization. You would think it was about something other than Jesus. Listen, when we steal center stage from Jesus, we lose the power of the Holy Spirit. The most recent survey, which is the most extensive survey of young people and the history of religion in America says this, the overwhelming numbers of teenagers in our churches are learning a brand of Christianity that is really nothing more than moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, what does that mean, moralistic? Moralistic means David beat his enemies, you can beat yours. Without saying you ought to live the life of David if you want to beat your enemies. You ought to live by the principles of David if you want to defeat a Goliath. You should be known as a person after God's own heart if you want to defeat the Goliaths in your life. It's moralistic. Do good, be good, and God will bless you. It's therapeutic. Sermons that make us feel good but don't call us to change anything. They make us feel good about ourselves, you know. Pat you on the back, you pat me on the back, we'll all feel good about each other, but without calling us to repentance. So they're moralistic and they're therapeutic, but then they're deistic. 
The Bible is truth about God rather than knowing God. Oh, I'm just going to learn some truth about God. I may add that some truth I know about some other gods or some other religions or some other thoughts or some other groups. I'll just throw it all in. But the Bible is not truth about God. It is God's love story to us from Genesis to Revelation. It is a love story of God's pursuit of man that ran from him in the garden. It's not a systematic theology. It's a love story. We've made it into a systematic theology, but you can't find one page in the Bible that says, here's your systematic theology. Here's your dispensational chart. It is first and foremost, and if it becomes anything other than this for you, you are not focusing on Jesus. It is first and foremost... God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever means anybody. It means anybody. Listen, you read the Bible, it'll mess up your theology. Because you'll have to read and figure out some things that don't fit in the way you got God designed. A Jesus movement, thirdly, is a about the mission of God. You will be my witnesses. It's about being on mission for God. It is about starting where we are and spreading out to the ends of the earth. It is about being missionaries. By the way, every one of you in this room is a missionary. If you're saved, you're a missionary. You're either a good one or a bad one. But you're a missionary at school, at church, you're a missionary at the grocery store, at the drugstore, at the gas station, at your work, wherever you are. You and I are missionaries. We are called to go into the world. Jesus did not say go into the world unless you don't have the gift of evangelism. Jesus didn't say go into the world unless you are introverted. He just said go. Make disciples. Teach them. Train them. Baptize them. And I'm with you. We'll go to Samaria to people that we might not even like and might not like us. I'm not interested in a move of God for the sake of saying, well, we've had revival. Because that, that would be a low goal for a high project of God. Here's what I am interested in. I'm interested in us understanding that we will either have revival or we will die having lived an irrelevant and meaningless life for the gospel. Do you really want to have taken up as much air and space with your life and at the end of the day, all it is is what you did for a living and you die a meaningless life for the gospel? And you stand before Jesus and he says, where are the people that you brought with you? I never shared my faith with anybody. Where, where, are the, where are the people that came to love Christ more because of you? Well, my Sunday school class, we always talked about praying for ingrown toenails and, you know, gout and other things. You know, we, we, you know, we spent a lot of time doing that. Where are the people that you brought with you? Do you really want to face the King of Kings and Lord of Lords with nail-scarred hands and nail-pierced feet and say, we got nothing? But I was in perfect attendance in Sunday school. Well, what did you do with what you learned in Sunday school? Well, I learned more. What did you do with what you learned? 
You see, we'll either have revival or we're going to die having lived irrelevant and meaningless lives for the gospel. But Jesus has got an answer for that in John chapter 7 and verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So here's the offer to them. They had religion, they had ritual, they had formalism, they sang songs, they went to church, they checked the box, but they didn't have power. The Spirit is the source of power. The Spirit is the source of strength. Here's what the Spirit-filled life is. It is the life of the yielded believer, dominated and controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit-filled life is the life of Christ inside of us. Living out in a lost world a dynamic life in such a way that people see and know that there's something unique and different about us. Sam Shoemaker, who was the Episcopal rector and uh, founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, said, living in the stream of the Spirit is possible. As water is the natural environment of a fish, so the Holy Spirit is the supernatural environment of the believer. Now, if you were to back up to John chapter 4, Jesus said to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now in John 7, he says it's living water. In other words, this flow of the Spirit of God should be natural and normal to the believer. We should be living in this power. Nothing else can do that for us. You see, if, if you drink from any other fountain, it's going to be dried out one day. And it's not going to satisfy. Fame, fortune, power, pleasure will never satisfy. Jobs will never satisfy ultimately. Homes, cars, all those things will never satisfy. You can drink from the fountain of many religions, but it won't satisfy you. Jesus said, if you've tried everything else and you're looking for something that will satisfy the thirst of your soul, come to me. Come to me. Now that promise was not just to the 11 apostles that were left. There were 120 in that upper room and they were all filled. Only 11 of them were apostles. The rest of them were housewives and, and carpenters and worksmen and craftsmen. They were just normal people. And so what Jesus is promising us is that he is a living artesian well of endless supply. Now the setting of this is the Feast of Tabernacles when they're coming to celebrate what God had done and they're gathering and they're singing and they're feasting. But when they went home, they went back to dead synagogues and just making sure they kept the law and making sure they kept the rules and making sure they kept their ceremonies and watched out for the Pharisee that they might offend. And it was dead and it was dry. And in the middle of that, Jesus cries out. That word is for an inarticulate utterance. It was, would resemble the sound of a raven. It, it was not an articulate word. He just cried out. 
And they turned to him in the middle of this feast and all this ceremony, and he got their attention. Verse 39, he says, I'm speaking to you of the Spirit. Now, here's what happens when you talk about the Holy Spirit. You know, the church I grew up in, I never heard my pastor one time preach a message on the Holy Spirit. There was a point when Baptists were so scared of the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't even get up the tree, much less get out on a limb. We, we tend to argue more about the Spirit than walk in the Spirit. What we tend to do is for fear of too much, we settle for too little. I, I can remember in this church when we got freed up a little bit and people started raising their hands during singing. Oh, we're going charismatic. No, we're going biblical. Lift up your hands to the Lord. Don't, don't let the charismatic steal what the Bible says. Lift up your hands to the Lord. But you're supposed to lift up holy hands. That's the key. They're supposed to be holy hands. And, and you, we can get so scared of too much and of excess. Listen, I love what Vance Havner said. I'd rather try to calm down a fanatic than breathe life into a corpse. And, and there are way too many corpses in the church today, dead, and don't want anybody to bother them. God does anything in this church, I'm going to leave. But not see anybody get excited. Hey, how come you got that decal on your car and that tag on your car and everything else about the school you didn't go to? That's my team. You never put one penny in that school except to buy the T-shirt. Just because you got the T-shirt doesn't mean you're a fan. And just because your name's on church road doesn't mean you're a Jesus person. You see, it's a movement of Jesus and it's people on mission for God. I love what Havner said. He said, I get tired of reading books on guidance that don't guide, books on assurance that don't assure, inspirational books that don't inspire, and books on how to run a church by somebody who never had one. The offer of power is available to all. The Holy Spirit is not the figurehead of any movement. That's the thing we have to remember. The Holy Spirit never glorifies himself. He always glorifies Jesus. When we start talking as if the Holy Spirit is some separate entity out here that we get in addition to Jesus, he is Jesus in us. He came to be Christ in us, the hope of glory. So when Paul says Christ in us, the hope of glory, when we talk about being filled with the Spirit, all we're talking about is Jesus being in us. Now, there are two not yets in these verses. Look at what Jesus says. There are two not yets. The Spirit had not yet been given, and the Son had not yet been glorified. Jesus stands at this feast, and it's a remembrance of Exodus 17, where Moses struck the rock and water came flowing out. And what he's telling us is that water is a picture of the endless supply of the Spirit of God in our lives. And he takes this Old Testament celebration, 
and he baptizes it and uses it. And now an artesian well of water, John 4, has become a living river of water flowing through us. Now what happens when we come and drink of the Spirit? This is an invitation from Jesus to us as well as to them. What happens when we drink of the Spirit? He's talking to people that are sick and tired of dead religion. They need more. They want more. And Jesus says, if you want more, you come to me. And there are three things that will happen. First of all, we have a new awareness of Christ. We have a new awareness of Christ. We fall back in love with Jesus. There's a first love awareness of Christ. Secondly, we have power for spiritual warfare. We have power for spiritual warfare. We're going to talk tonight about uh, the battle that we're in, Ephesians 6, and, and about Satan and what he does. But if you want power to fight spiritual warfare, you, you can't do it on your own. You've got to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we have a new awareness of Christ. We have power for spiritual warfare, and we have an urgency to share the gospel. We have an urgency to share the gospel. It, we, we want people to know the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we are so fully aware of that good news changing our lives and saving our lives. And so there's an urgency to share the gospel. There, there's nothing timid about the Jesus generation in the first generation. After the resurrection, Peter went from being a coward to courageous. The disciples who forsook him hit the streets and went all over Jerusalem sharing the gospel. Acts chapter 4, the place where they were gathered was shaken. The prime qualification for usefulness in the kingdom is being filled with the Spirit. Let me just give you some reminders. Acts 4.8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 4.31, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Acts 6.3, deacons were filled with the Spirit. Acts 11.24, Barnabas, a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Acts 13.9, Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 13.52, and the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. E.M. Bounds said, The Holy Spirit does not flow through methods, but through men. He does not come on machinery, but men. He does not anoint plans, but men, men of prayer. Now, how are we filled with the Spirit? It's all here in John chapter 7. Let me just sum it up in three words. First of all, thirsting. Thirsting. You see, if we're getting our fill from something other than Jesus, we're not thirsty. But if you get desperate for God, you'll get thirsty. Thirsting. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, can I tell you, nobody in this room is ever complacent about water. At some point, you need some. You want some. You want water because you can't live without it. You cannot live without water. You cannot exist on drinking Cokes and Diet Cokes and sweet tea, although it would be nice to try. You have to have water to supply you with what you need to live life. Jesus said, if you're thirsty spiritually, you're not complacent. Secondly, coming. If anyone is thirsty, let him come. Come to him 
for the answer. Not, you're not looking for answers in a book or in a formula or in a philosophy. You're looking for answers in the person of Jesus Christ. Thirsting, coming, drinking. The drinking is really believing and receiving, verse 39. This he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Drinking, believing, and receiving. Two hardest words in the English language. Half the time when I'm typing, my spell check corrects me. I-E in one, E-I in the other one. Not E-I-E-I-O, E-I. Believe and receive. How do we get it? We thirst, we come, we drink, we believe and receive. Now, there's three things about this believing and receiving. Believing is the law of salvation. You can't be saved without believing. You're not saved because your parents got you sprinkled when you were a baby. You're not saved because you joined a church. Believing is the law of salvation. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God even to those that believe on his name, that received him and believed on his name. It's the law of prayer, Mark eleven twenty four. All things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. Believing is the law of the Spirit, John 7. Take God at his word. So, if, if I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit when I'm saved, then I believe and receive that his fullness is available to me. That's what Ephesians 5 talks about, be filled with the Holy Spirit, a command. I'm just obeying a command, and I believe that I've received it, and I act like I've received it because I believe I have. It's to believe and receive. I believe that I have received it. It's not a feeling. I mean, you've had it. I've had it. You know, people say, well, you know, I asked the Holy Spirit to fill me, and, and I don't feel any different. Go, go stand in water and plug something in. You'll feel different. <laughs> Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the filling of the Spirit is a feeling. God is not interested in how high you can jump. He wants to know how straight you're going to walk when you land. And you may not be an outwardly expressive person, but don't let somebody rob you of walking in the fullness of the Spirit just because you don't feel any different. Believe and receive. Believe, receive, and then act on it. Don't, don't be a spiritual hypochondriac. Always checking your pulse. Just walk with God. Now, the offer of power is still on the table. It's still on the table today. The Jesus people, the Jesus movement, the Jesus generation, whatever you want to call them, greatly impacted worship. The reason that you see a praise team up here, the reason that everywhere in America and around the world there, there are praise teams and bands and not just a piano and an organ is because of the Jesus movement. So blame us and we confess we're guilty and we're glad of it. John Still said contemporary Christian music was born out of the counterculture movement of the 60s. Disillusioned hippies who found the answer in Christ used their most natural means of expression, music, to proclaim the joy of their salvation and to share Christ with others. It wasn't organ music either. It was the music they understood. In the early 1970s, phenomena happened. Started in the 60s, but in 1970s, real phenomena began 
to happen across America. And one of the guys that got it was Chuck Smith, who had one little church of a couple of hundred people, and God got a hold of him and got a hold of that church, and a lot of hippies got saved. And they, they used to do youth services three and four nights a week. Youth service. Now, this was not the whole church. This is just youth services. Average 2,000 at each service. And the service would go three to four hours. When they, and they'd have a band play, and they'd, they'd sing, and then they'd share prayer requests, and people give testimony. And then they'd do about an hour of Bible study and just walk them through the Bible. On one day, one day, Calvary Chapel baptized 2,000 young people in one day. And if you don't believe it, here's a video to prove it with Love Song, who were a part of Calvary Chapel singing the bass on this song. of identification totally and completely with his death, 
with his burial, with his resurrection. The water is actually a symbol of the grave, the old life, all of the past to be buried here today. Save the heartaches for the Presbyterian Church in Hollywood was sponsoring a coffee house ministry and Larry Norman who Mark sang one of his songs a few weeks ago would often slip in unannounced and sing a few songs. Underground newspapers were printed by the tens of thousands, the free paper, the right on paper, the agape paper. Arthur Blessett had a Christian nightclub called His Place on the Sunset Strip. Sammy Tippett led street witnessing in Chicago known as God's love in action and walked across America witnessing for Christ. Greg Laurie, who is the pastor of the Harvest Christian Fellowship, was saved at Calvary Chapel. They sent him 50 miles away from where he lived to start a Bible study in 1972, and that church now has 12,000 members. Elmbrook Church in Milwaukee, where Stuart Briscoe was pastor, grew from 350 to 2,000 in one year causing the church to have to relocate. Nancy Honeytree, one of the early artists of the Jesus Movement, said the Jesus Movement was a very specific workers' revival. Many of those who got saved are now in ministry and in the place for the next revival, which I believe will cross every barrier, age, denomination, and race. Tom Ellick was a student at Southwestern Seminary when the revival hit that campus and he said, it ushered into my life and awareness that God's work moves on the basis of prayer. From that moment on, I saw that God would do his greatest work as a result of prayer. I've never been able to shake that conviction since. From 1971 to 1975, every year 
for those four years, Southern Baptists baptize 400,000 people a year. We've not even come close since then. You want to know why we need revival? Because we've gone from 400,000 baptisms out of 46,000 churches. When that 400,000 was about 25,000 churches, now we've got 46,000 churches, and we're baptizing about 220,000. You want to know why we need revival? Because we're not doing what we should be doing in reaching people for Christ. John Bassanio was the young pastor of the First Baptist Church of uh, Houston, Texas. He became pastor in 1970. He inherited a dead, dying downtown church with a handful of people. You couldn't get hardly anybody in the church or to come to the church. In fact, John said, when I was there in view of a call, uh, I went next door to the jewelry store and there was more excitement in the jewelry store. I almost decided to not be the pastor and just join the jewelry store. But John cast a vision for reaching the next generation for Christ. He brought in Richard Hogue and Spiritual Revolution now, Spirino, with a group called Dove, Bill, Dave, and Mary, three people in a group, a little folk group. They went and blitzed the schools with rallies. So many came to Christ in Houston, Texas, that they had to move out of the church, which seated about what this church seats, and move to the Houston Coliseum. In four months, the First Baptist Church of Houston, Texas, saw 4,011 professions of faith, and 95% of those were teenagers. 4,011. 95% were teenagers. Does that stir anything in you? If 400 teenagers got saved in Albany, Georgia, it would be a game changer. But why aren't we believing God for this kind of thing? Listen, 1,500 of those were baptized at First Baptist. Many went to other churches. In 1970, First Baptist Houston baptized 1,669 that was 1,274 above the previous year. J. Edwin Orr, is a revival historian, said the Jesus movement, the 1970 awakening, made up a minor visitation, not a major one. And historically, he's probably right. The Jesus movement was a minor visitation. It, it, it did not take hold like it could have, and most historians would also tell you it didn't take hold because the church didn't want it, because it would have required too much change. So, knowing that J. Edmund Orr, who was one of the leading revival historians that died a few years ago, said of the Jesus movement, the 70 awakening made up a minor visitation, not a major one. That being said, let me ask this question. If such a minor movement made such a major impact, what could a major one do today? If such a minor movement of God, by historian standards, made such a major impact What could a major one do? What would it do to change our elementary and middle school and high school campuses in our region? What would it do to change the families? What would it do 
to kids on drugs and alcohol, sexually abused, verbally abused, to know that there's a church that has a major compassionate interest in their salvation. I think we could make a difference. I think we need to make a difference. I don't think we have to vote on it or discuss it anymore. I just think we need to do it. Because it's the call of God on us. It's the great commission. And it's the great commandment. Would you pray with me with heads bowed and eyes closed? So I want to ask you some questions. What, what, what if we had, before Jesus came back, what if we had one more Jesus movement? And this generation, the 13 to the 29-year-olds, this generation caught on fire for God to such an extent that the news media would report it, that magazines would cover it, that social media would see it trending in every possible way. I don't believe it's because God can't. I really believe it's because we don't think God can. And we don't want to pay the price. Are we praying to that end for that kind of movement? Are we working to that end for that kind of movement of God? Are we believing to that end that God would do that in our lifetimes? Are we asking God to do that? He's doing it all around the world. I mean, all around the world. He's doing it. The only place that is not experiencing some form of revival in the world is America. It's happening in Russia, it's happening in China, it's happening in Iraq and Iran, it's happening in Pakistan, in South America, it's happening in East Asia, it's happening all around the world. And in most of those places, the church is persecuted. And it's not happening here. Woe to us if we're content with Christianity the way it is being portrayed in America today. Because the one thing you can say about American Christianity is it lacks power. It does not lack entertainment. It does not lack personalities. It does not lack money. It does not lack facilities. But what American Christianity lacks is supernatural power. Are you praying to that end? Are you working to that end? Are you believing God to that end? I wonder if you're willing to pray this statement. Lord, let's just be honest. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I want it. And I'm willing to lay aside what I think it ought to look like for you to do it.
Because I care more about a generation coming up than I care about myself. I care more about them having a strong and vital faith in their generation than I care about if things are like I want them. Are we really willing to pray that way? Father, would you just do it one more time? Before you come back or before we die, would you do it one more time? Lord, I, I look at people that influence my life and they prayed that they would see a move of God one more time before they died. And I'll listen to my old youth minister who's 78 years old with tears in his voice and in his eyes saying, I long to see God do that one more time. For some of us, it'd be the first time we've seen it. And we need to see it. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, let me just tell you something. He'll change your life. He'll change your life. We're, we're not going to stand and sing. We're I'm going to ask you, if you need to make a decision for Christ, would you just find your way when we're dismissed to the welcome desk and just say, I need to talk to somebody about Jesus, and we'll be glad to talk to you. We'll be glad to talk to you. If you need to be baptized, which as Chuck Smith said in that video, is the next step after you've been saved is follow the Lord in baptism, then just find one of our staff at the welcome desk say, I need to talk to somebody about being baptized. But folks, listen, nobody can want revival for you. You have to want it for yourself. And nobody can pray it for you and get it done. You have to pray it for yourself. Revival is a personal matter. It is a personal matter. It is you yielding control of your life to Jesus Christ and walking in the fullness of the Spirit, and that's personal revival, and that's where it always begins. Father, stir us and don't let us go. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.